I'm Carrie Bringhurst. A northern Utah nonprofit has partnered with a family foundation to open a transitional housing neighborhood for families escaping abuse. This is the second neighborhood of homes built through this partnership. The opening of a neighborhood of safe homes in Cache Valley is timely. Jill Anderson is executive director of CAPSA, a nonprofit domestic violence, sexual assault, and rape recovery center serving cash in rich counties. Anderson says CAPSA has seen an increase in the number of individuals who have needed support during the COVID-19 pandemic. The numbers requesting shelter went up 60%. There was a woman sitting at the kitchen table and she opened the newspaper and she was looking for apartments and she just closed it and put her head in her hands. She said, I don't know how I'm going to afford an apartment and to help raise my kids on my own instead of just crisis intervention, which is a critical piece. We had to do something about that housing piece. When people get out the door from abuse, they usually come well under-resourced with debts and a lot of problems and a lot of worries. Deloy Hansen represented the Hansen Family Foundation. He says other communities could look to the CAPSA way of transitioning the abused by providing new homes like these that include up to three bedrooms, a two-car garage, and landscaping. One of our goals is to help lift that worry that you have resources to buy food, put gas in a car, meet some of those just immediate needs. It's not just having a house, it's having a neighborhood and a support, and that's what CAPSA provides and this neighborhood will provide. The Hansen Family Foundation is also piloting a scholarship program to help CAPSA provide those in need with funding for everyday expenses. CAPSA is currently supporting 21 families and homes and announced there are six more homes under construction to help support CAPSA clients. Reporting from Logan, I'm Carrie Bringhurst with Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in February. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today our guest is Cache Valley resident Marin Johnson. She is going to tell us some fascinating stories from the world of dog sledding. For the past five years she worked for uh, dog sledding businesses in Alaska. She lived on a glacier with 280 sled dogs. She also worked for four-time Iditarod winner Jeff King in his tourist business and assisted him in the thousand-mile Iditarod race. Marin Johnson has a bachelor's degree in outdoor recreation management from Utah State University and a certificate in veterinary technology from Bridgeland Technical College uh, in Logan. And uh, Marin Johnson joins us uh, for the hour. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm really happy and excited to be here today. Uh, so uh, you were you were there. Uh, let me get this part out of the way first. Uh, you were there uh, five years in Alaska. Uh, yeah. now, before we went in there, you told me now, now you're working at a dairy farm. That's correct, yeah. When I came back to Utah, I knew that I still wanted to work with animals. Sled dogs aren't as common here. And started looking around and found this job at a dairy farm in Smithfield. And I absolutely love it. It's so been a lot of fun. Went from dogs to cows. Yes. <laughs> bit of a shift. <laughs> that is a bit of a shift. That's right. Um, so I, I, have you always been interested in animals, wanted to be around animals? Yes. I was one of those people who was kind of born just loving dogs especially, but animals in general. <laughs> always sought out opportunities to be around them. So uh, you got your degree in outdoor recreation management and certificate in veterinary technology. Uh, so what are you, uh, what are you thinking, uh, in the future? What's, uh, what's your dream? Let's put it that way. What would you like to do? (laughs) 
Well, I've already lived out part of my dream up in Alaska with the sled dogs. You know, the outdoor recreation degree played into the tourism that I worked during the summer related to the sled dogs. And then animal sciences helped me know how to best take care of and work with the dogs year-round. And I'd like to get back into that again one of these days. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. kind of the dream. Yeah. Uh, were you up in Alaska during COVID or were you back in Utah? I was. I left, um, I guess it was August of 2020 is when I returned to Utah. So I was there when it first hit and for the first few months of COVID. Yeah. Uh, how were things there in Alaska with, uh, during those first few months of COVID? You know, Alaska, they say, has been socially distanced since 1959, yeah, <laughs> the right. year that they became a state. Um, I lived pretty remotely, and so it, as far as that goes, it didn't affect my day-to-day activities much. Um, you know, I didn't. I lived 40 minutes away from the nearest grocery store and community. So it, what it did affect, it did affect races, um, the way that those sled dog races functioned. We had to make adjustments so that people could socially distance better. Um, funny enough, it actually really hit right smack in the middle of Iditarod, the 1,000-mile race that happens in March each year. So at the start line, we had thousands of people gathered. It was, you know, a big party as usual. And then by the time the race finished, everybody was scattered, and, you know, they'd, they'd put all these – they had to come up with ways to – socially distance and make adjustments right in the middle of the race to keep villagers and others kind of protected from press and volunteers who are traveling to the remote villages along the trail. That's, that was kind of interesting to see. Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, so it hit during the race, while the race was going on, it, it, it had to make adjustments on the fly. Yes. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, and I noticed I was tooling around uh, today. Um, I, th- I think Alaska still requires you to, you know, to get a test. You have to send your negative test into the, they call it the travel portal. Um, uh, you you can get a test w- w- when you arrive, but if, if that's the case, you have to then quarantine. Yep, that's correct. Yeah. Alaska still has, I think, one of the stricter policy travel policies related to COVID. Yeah. Uh, so uh, how do you how do you get connected to to dog sledding um, in Alaska? You know, you have this dream, you have this thought, but uh, how did you make that happen? <laughs> well, it, it's interesting. It kind of just fell. The opportunity kind of just fell into my lap in a way. Um, one year, shortly after I graduated from USU, I had a friend who got me interested in the idea of going up to Alaska and, and seeing what there was. And I started to do some research, you know, like, you know, what's going on? What could I do up there? And started to see all these sled dog companies. And I thought, wow, like at the time I was working basic obedience training with puppies here in Cache Valley. And I loved that job. And it, it made me want to learn more about other types of working dogs. Um, when I saw the sled dogs, I thought, well, this could be fun. I could go up and learn about sled dogs for a year and then maybe move on to police dogs for a year and these other types of working dogs. And I, it, in my research, I found a company who runs tours up on the Mendenhall Glacier near Juneau, Alaska. And they were looking for people and exper- it, experience was not required. Um, sled, previous sled dog experience was not required. They were looking for people who had dog experience. And I thought, well... Maybe I'll just apply for this and see what happens. And I applied and got hired within 
about span of a week. So that was exciting. And that was my first introduction was going up to this glacier with 280 dogs, and there were about 20 people total on staff. And that's where I learned how to handle sled dogs, how to take care of them. We ran tours for the summer, so people would fly up in helicopters to our dog camp and then go on a three- to five-mile run around the glacier, and we'd point out features, and they'd get to interact with the dogs and have some fun. And so that's how I got involved, and then I was just hooked and then (laughs) stuck with it for five years and moved on, got into the, the racing world during the winter. Um, but uh, I made a lot of connections up there on the glacier that helped me get into racing. Uh, so tell me about that. Uh, the the Mendenhall Glacier, right? I understand you, uh, you you lived in Juneau, commuted to the glacier by helicopter, would be up there for, what, a week at a time or something? Yeah, seven to ten days. So we, we had kind of a base housing area in Juneau, and we'd get to go down there for one or two days to, you know, shower, do our laundry, and then we'd helicopter back up to the glacier, and we lived in tents. There was no electricity, no running water, no cell phone reception. <laughs> um, it was so no op- no opportunity to do those things like shower and, and do laundry up there. Um, so we'd be up there, yeah, seven to ten days at a time, just taking care of the dogs full-time, running these tours during the day and um, doing chores in the evenings and mornings. So it's you and 280 dogs. <laughs> What's that like? Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work, let me tell you. Um, so they had it set up. They were divided into eight different yards of 35 dogs in each yard and one musher assigned to each yard. And then each hand, then there would be a handler that would assist two mushers. My first summer, I was a handler. And so that meant I was assisting two different mushers with their yards, which was 70 dogs that I was taking care of. And it's amazing. You know, people say, how could you possibly get to know that many dogs? (laughs) But when you spend all day, every day with them, you get to know their names, their personalities, their their quirks, really everything about them. Um, And you learn, you know, which ones prefer to be fed one way. Some dogs prefer, prefer to be fed another. And that's that's kind of how you learn to take the best care of each individual dog. The care is very individualized, um, but having it split up like that so that, you know, I could focus on these 70, but then with those 70, there were two mushers that were each focusing on just their 35 is kind of how how we made it work. Um, but, you know, it's noisy during mealtimes, <laughs> 280 dogs all barking excitedly for their food at the same time, uh, but it's also quiet, too, at night. You know, they all go to sleep. Everything they do, they do together. So they bark together, they're quiet, and rest together, they run together. Um, so even though there's 280 dogs, it's not always noisy, but it's always fun. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, very very communal, but very social, right? And and, and oh, s- yes. a structured, uh, uh, what would we call it, um, a hierarchy, right? So, yeah. so as a musher, you're the, I guess you're the alpha? Yeah, that's the ideal is, you know, I'm the one that the dogs are all going to be listening to. Out on the trail, they're going to be listening to me to tell them whether we're going left or right or straight ahead. So I'm the one kind of giving the direction, and that makes me, I guess, the alpha, you could say. Yeah. Um, uh, so I want to I want to talk about the dogs. First of all, the, the tourists who would come in, uh, I guess these were from cruise ships, 
then they'd be what? Yeah. Flown in for this uh, side adventure. Yep. So in Juneau on the glacier, we had oh I don't know how many cruise ships, many cruise ships land each week, and people could choose to helicopter up, um, and then we'd take them on a ride. So we had people from all over the world visiting us, which was another really fun thing to see. We got to meet so many different types of people. Yeah, that must have been must have been fun, uh, interesting. So the, the 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 folks, the tourists would uh, what get to ride in the sled? Is that the deal? Yeah, so they'd come up, they'd be introduced to their dog team, hop on the sled, and and we'd take off. And as we go around the glacier, we'd make different stops along the way where they could get out of the sled, take pictures, go up and mingle with the dogs, pet them, get to know them. Um, we'd show off different glacier landmarks and and give them all answer all of their questions. Time to answer all their questions. <laughs> yeah, what what were some of the questions you got? Funny enough, one of the most common questions I got was whether or not the dogs each had their own names. <laughs> People are always curious about that, and they do. And it's actually really fun how we name them. Um, each litter is given a theme. For example, there was a litter of seven boy puppies, seven males, and they were given the the theme of the seven dwarves. So there was bashful, grumpy, dopey, <laughs> so on. <laughs> um, and that helps us keep track of which ones are related and... It's just kind of a fun way to name them. So that was actually one of my number one questions was how we name the dogs and what their names are. And then after that, a lot of questions about the Iditarod race, the Thousand Mile Iditarod race. Um, and so that's another thing that... Uh, and I'll have questions about that as we go along as well. Um, <laughs> so I want to talk about the dogs. Um, what uh, What breed of dog generally? So most sled dogs, most distant sled dogs are going to be the Alaskan Husky. Um, the Alaskan Husky is different from the Siberian as far as, like, when you when you hear Siberian Husky, you get this image of a dog with a gray and white face or maybe black and white, you know, blue eyes, fluffy. Um, the Alaskan Husky does not have a standard look, per se. They're bred more for their health and other characteristics, such as really tough feet, um, healthy appetites, drive and desire to run. We're looking for a a good, thick double coat. Um, so we're looking for more of those types of qualities when we breed over, like we're not looking for dogs with blue eyes or with a curly tail, per se. Um, and so they all look very different. Uh, they range from about 40 to 80 pounds, so quite a range in there. You'll have, even within one litter, you'll have some puppies come out white, Others are black. Others are <laughs> of tricolor. Um, so it's interesting to see how those come out. Um, but the Alaskan Husky is the most popular um, because they're the ones who are really, they, they've been bred for it for hundreds of years. And so they're the ones that enjoy it, who really thrive and do very well in that environment. Uh, so you, uh, bred to pull sleds, is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Yep, they're bred to, and it's more of running really than pulling. Mm-hmm. Um, every they've actually done a study where they put a scale on the back of each dog's harness, and on this Iditarod race, the most a dog generally pulls on average is about five pounds. So they don't have to be especially strong. It's really this endurance distance racing build yeah. that they have. Uh, so I have a question about the the dogs and and racing. Um, 
uh, is this is this hard on the dogs in any way? Is this is there any cruelty inherent in this? Uh, I guess this activity, the sport. No. Um, in fact, if it if it looks like it's too difficult for a dog, then you're usually doing something wrong, <laughs> or the dog may have. You know, Jeff King actually, who who taught me a lot about racing. One thing he constantly says as he's training me how to train the dogs is it should look easy for them. Um, and so that's all about picking the right pace, the right the right amount of time out on the trail. Um, you're picking the right diet for them. And the way that these dogs have been bred for hundreds of years, it's very rare to find one who doesn't enjoy what they're doing. If that does happen, then they get adopted out to pet homes as puppies. It's something you can usually pick up on pretty quick. I've seen it maybe once ever where there was a puppy who is all excited about life but gets hooked up to the sled and is like, eh, I'd rather not today. And we just said, okay, that's fine. We'll send you <laughs> out to a. And so we, we did the research. We found somebody who was looking for a pet dog and rehomed her, and she's doing great. But like I said, that's actually quite rare in this breed. Mm-hmm. Do uh, do they enjoy it? And and uh, I mean, how can you tell? I mean, they can't talk to you, right? But uh, how do you? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Their body language tells you so much, especially once you get to know them. Um, it's very easy to tell kind of what they're thinking, what they're wanting. Um, and what I think of is the end of the 2019 Iditarod race, I got to fly up to Nome, the finish line, <laughs> to greet Jeff King's team as they, they came into Nome so that I could help take care of them and get them and fly back home with them. And <laughs> I'll never forget, I watched them. This was my first time at the Iditarod finish line. And I was sitting there waiting for them to come in, and they came in, and he stopped the sled, and they were just, I mean, bouncing up and down, (laughs) barking, saying, hey, why have we stopped? (laughs) Like, you know, they don't understand a finish line, and everything about their body language was just like, go, 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 we still want to go. Even after Mm -hmm. a 1,000 miles, they were just, they just had these lit, their eyes were just lit with excitement, saying, like, this is the best eight days of our life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's so fun to see. It's so special to be there to witness that. Do you have, uh, um, I'm guessing you, I don't know, you you have special connections with certain dogs. Oh, yes. I mean, I love every single dog I've worked with, but there are some that you naturally will kind of bond with more than others. Um, tell me about uh, how what it's like to be a musher. Uh, so you've uh, you've raced in a race what seventy miles or, or so, assisted in Jeff King with the Iditarod. That's thousand miles. But um, tell me about tell me about being being out there. It's uh, I mean I'm picturing the the you know the videos and the photos. A uh, team of what fourteen or so dogs. Uh, the 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 mushers standing upright, and you got some stuff on the sled. I don't know food supplies. Yeah. I don't know what's on there. Yeah, so on your sled, you've, it's mostly dog food. You're carrying a lot of dog food with you to feed those 12 to 14 dogs, um, which is what you start with in the Iditarod is 12 to 14. And and it takes a lot of food to feed those dogs. So, so that's primarily what's in the sled. There's also some required gear for safety reasons, such as an axe, um, fire starting, winter sleeping bag for yourself, snowshoes, 
Um, and then you'll also have spare sled parts, spare harnesses for the dogs, um, ropes and duct tape for fixing anything that might break. <laughs> That's typically what's in the sled. Mm-hmm. Do you get, uh, sounds like the dogs are <laughs> bred for endurance. Um, do they get tired? Yes. Do you get tired? Yes. <laughs> you know, you can. That's one of the, the biggest jobs of the musher is to kind of control the dogs. If it was up to them, they would just take off at a full-out sprint, 20-plus miles per hour, and just keep going until they couldn't anymore, which is not in their best interest, of course. And so the musher's job is, as you train the team and you're getting to know the dogs, you have to know how to control the speed. You have to know which speed they're going to be the most successful at, the one that they can trot at and continue day after day without tiring. Um, And so the average speed on the Iditarod, even for winners, is about 10 miles per hour, even 8 to 10 miles per hour, even though dogs are are capable of going much faster. Um, And so it's funny, most people don't expect to hear this, but you'll spend an awful lot of that race on the brake, (laughs) just keeping the dogs. It's much harder to slow them down than it is to get them to speed up um, because their natural desire is just to go fast. Um, So as a musher on the sled, one of your main jobs is just speed control. You have to know, okay, they can run this speed for this this long based on my training style. And another fun fact that people tend to be surprised by is on this 1,000-mile race, even the the top winning mushers, if you look at their run and rest schedule, they're running and resting about 50% of the time each. So about half the time on the race, the dogs are down sleeping, um, taking a break. But a big part of being a musher is just knowing how to balance the run and the rest so that they can maintain their schedule without tiring out. If you just joined us, we're talking with Marin Johnson. She's living in uh, Cache Valley. Uh, for the last five years, she was up in Alaska uh, working for various tourist uh, businesses. Uh, in fact, she uh, essentially lived for a while on a glacier with 280 sled dogs, uh, and uh, tourists would come in uh, to uh, to participate in, in uh, dog sledding. And uh, she has uh, worked for uh, four-time Iditarod winner Jeff King in his tourist business and assisted him in that 1,000-mile uh, Iditarod uh, race as well. Um, and she's telling us all about it on Access Utah uh, today. We're going to take a brief break, and we'll come right back. Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. Support also comes from Utah State University MBA offering opportunities to achieve new goals and further careers in the new year. The fall semester application deadline is June 15th. Information can be found at HuntsmanMBA.com. A man spends a fortune on a blank white painting, and his best friends can't understand why. I didn't like the painting, but I didn't actually hate it. Well, of course not. You can't hate what's invisible. Bob Balaban, Brian Cox, and Jeff Perry star in Yasmina Reza's Art, this week on L.A. Theatre Works. Tune in Friday night at 9, here on Utah Public Radio. 
Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in February. We're back with Marin Johnson. Uh, Marin Johnson is living in Cache Valley. Uh, Marin Johnson, you were raised in Cache Valley, were you? I was, yes. Yeah. Uh, got her bachelor's degree in outdoor recreation management from USU and a certificate in veterinary technology from Bridgeland Technical College in Logan. Um, and uh, about five years ago, she decided, uh, hey, I want to do, uh, I want to work with dogs up in Alaska. So that's what she did, uh, working with uh, some tourist companies there. And then, then she uh, got connected with Jeff King, who's uh, famous as a four-time Iditarod winner, helped him in his tourist business and assisted him in that uh, thousand-mile Iditarod uh, race. So we're talking all about dog sledding on the program uh, today. Um, so I want to talk about Iditarod. This is, uh, you know, it's, it's famous. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's an endurance race, a, a thousand miles racing. Th- I'm, you know, I imagine there's blizzards and such, uh, uh, to go, to go through. Um, so, uh, tell us where, to, where these, a thousand miles are. It starts in Anchorage, does it? Ends in Nome? It does. Yes. So in Anchorage, we have what's called the ceremonial start where all of the teams will gather, and they actually just run through the streets of town so that everybody gets a chance to see the dogs and the teams, and it's kind of a big party. And then the very next day, um, the dogs all drive up to Willow, Alaska, which is about 45 minutes to an hour north of Anchorage, and that's where the official start of the race is. And then they will travel from Willow, Alaska, all the way up to Nome, Alaska, where the finish is. Um, and I read it, it used to, the, the actual start used to start in Wasilla, famous for uh, mm-hmm. um, Sarah Palin, uh, but then there wasn't enough snow some years in that, so they went a little further north to actually start it. Um, so um, tell me about to what you did on, on the race. I understand um, that uh, you've been involved in everything from breeding, caring for puppies, uh, caring for the sled dogs, providing veterinary care. Um, so what did you do on the Iditarod? Tell me the various things you did. Okay. Yeah, so my for my first Iditarod, I was strictly handling for Jeff King and his team. And so what that entails is all winter long I was there, I was caring for the dogs, I was scooping the poop and feeding them and taking them out on training runs. And then come March, the start of the Iditarod race, I would drive, I drove the dogs down to Anchorage and and, you know, we went through the the ceremonial start and got up to the restart. And then my job at that point is just to take care of the dogs, get them hooked up to the sled and get, get Jeff ready to go, uh, make sure he has all of his required gear. Um, we've sent out drop bags full of supplies to the 24 different checkpoints throughout the race so that he has supplies down along the trail. Um, and I hook the dogs up and then they take off and... You know, that's about it, actually. Jeff is not allowed to have any assistance during the race. Um, that would be a disqualifying thing if he if he got outside assistance. Um, but I do all of the prep work to get him to the start line and taken off, and then I get to head up to the finish line, and then I'm there to greet him and take care of the dogs and get them back home again. Um, so that's what I've done when I when I handle for one team specifically. But I've also volunteered for the Iditarod race as a whole, which is really interesting. Um, I actually work, I volunteer in the return dog program. And what the return dog program is, is 
along these 24 different checkpoints, mushers have the option to drop a dog, and that means sign a dog over to a team of veterinarians and race handlers and techs like myself, and and then they get to continue on the race, and we take care of that dog until we can send it back home. And there's a lot of different reasons a musher will drop a dog, and actually one of the most common we see is musher strategy. And that would be when they take a perfectly healthy dog and they say, you know, this dog's doing great, but taking care of 14 dogs takes a lot of work. <laughs> That's, And they say, you know, at this point in the race, I want to drop one so that I have more time at the checkpoints to rest and do these other things. So they'll send one dog home with us, and that's four less feet they're massaging, a gallon less of water that they're melting out of snow for the dog every day. And we'll take care of that dog and and fly it home to Anchorage. Um, other reasons that dogs get dropped, sprained wrists we see sometimes um, where, you know, the dog's going to recover in two to three days, but the musher doesn't want them to continue, continue running on that, obviously. Um, oh, if a female comes into heat, that can cause what we call dog drama out on the trail. Mm. <laughs> and so mushers will often sign them off to us and, and take them home. And so that's the program I've worked with for four years now. I've worked with the Iditarod Return Dog Program. I've had a lot of fun with that. Uh, by the way, um, I was just reading on the on the Internet, just you know, pulled up Iditarod and a bunch of stuff comes up. Um, these are, um, one question was, is our teams all of one sex or the other? I guess the answer is mixed, mm-hmm. right? But, but some, they said, yeah. they said some mushers think that, uh, a team of all one gender is better than mixed. Yeah. It's funny. Mushers all have kind of differing opinions. And I think part of it has to do just with the, your style of training and whatnot, but I'd say 99% of the teams are mixed. And then there are, are occasional mushers out there who have an all-male team or an all-female team, but it's much less common than the mixed. Mm-hmm. Um, so do, uh, here's another question that, that, I don't know, came up. I, I kind of wondered this. Do the dogs get cold? Uh, you know, I know they're bred for <laughs> this kind of uh, yeah. you know, climate. Do they get cold out there? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, they can, but it's not overly common. Um you know, these dogs are bred with a really great double coat system. And how that works is their outer layer is kind of coarse, oily guard hairs. And those almost work. They're semi-water resistant. Like if it's raining, it kind of just rolls off of them. The rain doesn't necessarily make it into their skin. Um, and and then the under layer is a lighter downy undercoat, very much like a parka. And that's the part that's going to keep them warm. So they have the outer layer that keeps them dry, the inner layer that keeps them warm. But what really keeps the, what, what makes the heat is their incredible metabolism. These dogs, during the peak of Iditarod, can burn eight to 10,000 calories a day, which means we have to feed them eight, at least eight to 10,000 calories per day. That's a lot of dog food. Um, that's actually the equivalent of a 150-pound person consuming and burning about 30,000 calories a day. Mm, wow. And so just that process of burning all those calories really generates a lot of heat, and then their coat keeps them warm. So as far as getting cold, you know, it's not common that they'll get cold. If the temperatures do drop to, you know, negative 30, negative 40, we have dog coats and leggings and other 
other things we can put on the dog to help add that extra layer of protection. But in all my years of drop dog, things like, you know, frostbite or hypothermia are actually very rare. In fact, we've seen more dogs who are a little bit overheated than hypothermic, for sure. Interesting. Um, I have a question about teamwork. Uh, do do some okay. dogs work better uh, t- together than, than others? You got four up to 14, I guess, on pulling on the same line. Do you have to train them to, you know, to, to work together, or does natural pack instinct to take over yeah well for the most part it's a natural instinct you know i don't know if you've ever leash trained a dog but most dogs their natural instinct is to just pull and go (laughs) and that's their their main focus and so rather than training them out of that to like walk nicely on a leash we're just taking those natural instincts and encouraging them and for the most part when you hook them up in a team for the first time they're just so excited at the the energy the other dogs are putting off, the energy that they're putting off that at first they might not even see the dogs around them. They're just so excited to go. But then as they get more experienced, they start, we start to notice like, okay, this dog works better up in the front of the team. This one prefers to be in the back. This one likes being with that one. You know, Lobo prefers not to be next to Rambo. (laughs) So you kind of learn the dog's, and you learn, yeah, they prefer to work next to certain dogs. And so when you arrange the team, you're taking all of those factors into account for each dog. Um, and and then when you put them in the part where they they seem to enjoy running better, like the front or the back, that's when you see them really excel and start to work together as a team is when all the dogs are in the places where they like to be. Mm-hmm. Oh, so they do have places uh, generally where they like to be, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they will be rotated throughout the race, but generally you'll have, like, the same six dogs in the front half of the team and the same six dogs in the back half of the team just kind of moving around. Yeah. So I asked you if the dogs get cold. I'm guessing the musher gets cold. What do you (laughs) put on a lot of layers, (laughs) do you? Yeah. The musher's more likely to get cold than the dogs. We're not bred for, (laughs) for, you know, 20 below weather without some help. Um, We have... I have some really fancy boots. They've got, you know, three layers of insulation between my foot and the ground. So I'm quite a bit taller when I wear those. Mm. Um, We have just giant parkas. You know, nowadays, anything about between zero and 30 is going to feel really, really warm to us. When it gets below zero, we'll start putting on these parkas and mittens and, you know, stuff the mittens with hand warmers. But um, fur ruffs are actually super important when it gets windy out. Um, that can really make a difference in keeping wind and snow off of your face. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm guessing uh, probably most years you're riding through blizzards, you're riding through some rough weather. It's You're out there, what, anywhere between 8 and 14 days? Yeah, that's correct, 8 to 14 days. Yeah, and most of the time the weather that you're going to see is pretty mild. Um but every, it seems like every year at least one storm, one or two storms will pop up. Um, if it's really bad, you know, the wind's blowing around, you can't see because of snow, or just wind in general can be tough, then what you're going to do is, is stop your team, pull over. Um, you always carry straw and other things in your sled. And so, you know, if that, at that point if it was too windy to move on, you would put the dog coats on the dogs. That would help protect them from the wind. 
make up straw beds that they could kind of bury into, and then I'd just curl up in my sleeping bag next to them, and we'd kind of wait out the storm. Um, if it's if it's not too crazy, like light snow and and things like that, you know, the dogs actually really thrive running in those conditions. But yes, when it gets too bad, the race kind of stops. Everybody pulls over. Yeah. <laughs> take shelter. Yeah. So I think the record is eight days, right? And it could go up to yeah. 14 days for some mushers, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so that's pretty intense, eight to 14 days, I'd imagine. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to go as far as you can, but you're trying to preserve your dogs or yourself, uh, keep everybody healthy, um, you know, and uh, that, that must be quite the balancing act and pretty stressful. It is. Actually, the mental aspect of mushing is something that, for me, is a little more difficult some days than the, than the physical aspect. And because it is a giant game of chess, and, and also you have a pretty severe lack of sleep, the human does on the trail. Because when you come to these rest stops with your dogs, what you do, like say you're resting for four to six hours, I mean, you're going to spend the first few hours feeding the dogs, massaging their feet, putting them to bed. And then you're going to try to take care of yourself, and then you've got about 45 minutes of sleep before you got to get up and get the dogs ready for the next run. So the mushers get very sleep-deprived. Def- there have been stories of hallucinations on the trail on occasion. Um, but it is hard to to play a chess game when you're in that state sometimes, but you're just constantly focusing on, you know, every dog. Is this dog's gait still look good? Yes, they do. Great. You know, how much does this dog need to eat? So there's a lot of planning and strategy that goes on. It's very tiring. The key, though, is through it all. You can't focus on what's hard. <laughs> you have to, you have to stay positive for the dogs because they really feed off of the energy that you're giving off. I've seen it before, where like if you can stay happy and positive even though you're tired, then the dogs are going to stay happy and positive. If you start to feel a little bit down or or depressed, you're going to start seeing less excitement in the dogs. It's really interesting how that relationship works. But mm. they're really so in tune with you as a human, as their caregiver, that they'll really feed off of that. So it's important to stay positive through everything. So this is an endurance test for the musher. Uh, is it also for the dogs? Is this, I don't know, where, where is this on a scale of difficulty for, for the dogs going mm-hmm. 8 to 14 days? Well, you know, the dogs run every day. The Iditarod race is when the world sees them run, when they're on camera and whatnot. And so it's really nothing too new for the dogs or for the humans when, you know, at the end of the day, it's just more in the public eye. So for the dogs, they're like, this is just the best day ever. We're out on the trail. The musher's not going home at the end of the day. They're just staying with us <laughs> 24-7. This is great. That's the attitude I see in the dogs when I'm out on the trail. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, so I guess my next question is, what what's the appeal? Uh, that, that kind of sounds snarky, but I don't mean it that way. Um, right. <laughs> you know, because people seek this out. I, I, I pulled up the the roster for uh, this year's I Did a Rod, which, by the way, starts uh, March 6th. Um, you got a lot of people from Alaska, but you got uh, mushers from Norway, Denmark, uh, Canada. There's uh, somebody from Minnesota, and it's a. It, I, I saw it, I, among the down forty odd. I saw oh twelve or thirteen women uh, entered in the uh-huh. race. Uh, so what's what's I guess for you? What's what what's the what's the appeal of, of of being on a dog sled, being a musher? Just being out there, you know, 
being with the dogs and working with the dogs, I mean, these these dogs are just incredible. And actually, I have a friend, Chris Parker, who's running his his rookie Iditarod this year, and he said it, I think, better than I can. <laughs> so I'll kind of just quote him here. He's, he says, I want to make something clear. I don't run dogs so that I can win races. I don't do it because I love being on the runners, although I do. And it isn't some kind of power trip. He said, I, I run dogs simply because I'm in awe, awe of them. And, I mean, I feel that's so true. Like, being out there on the runners, it's so peaceful out in the wilderness. You know, there's no cell phones. There's no distractions. It's just you and the dogs, part of this team, all working together. And it's just it's just an incredible feeling. You're out there with your 12 best friends doing what they love to do, which makes me happy <laughs> to see them so happy. And it's just such a, a peaceful situation to be in. Mm. If you just joined us, we're talking with Marin Johnson. Uh, she was raised in Cache Valley, back in Cache Valley right now. Uh, but for the last five years, she was up in Alaska uh, working uh, with dogs, sled dogs, and working with various businesses, also assisted uh, Jeff King, four-time Iditarod winner, and assisted with the race uh, itself, volunteering with the race in general, the 1,000-mile Iditarod race which I mentioned uh, so this year's version starting on March 6th. We'll have more with uh, Marin Johnson in our last segment following this. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Cash Arts, presenting the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber with Kurt Bester, Dallin Vale Bales, David Osmond, Nicole Riding, Lisa Hopkins-Segmiller, and Lexi Walker at the Ellen Eccles Theater in Logan, May 21st and 22nd. More information at cashearts.org. On the next Radio Lab, an amazing piece of biological detective work. Two great mysteries of nature, embryonic eels boiling out of the earth, daily scenes of cannibalism solved. Teeny little animal with an enormous <laughs> bubble as hot as the sun. Something that has tormented men of science since Aristotle. Oh, yeah, okay. That's on the next Radio Lab. Next up at 10 on UPR. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in February. We're back with Marin Johnson. Uh, Marin Johnson uh, lives in Cache Valley now. Over the last five years, she was up in Alaska, worked with various uh, dog sledding businesses, also assisted with the Iditarod, including helping uh, Jeff King, four-time Iditarod winner. Um, and uh, we've got her for another few minutes here uh, sharing some stories so you, uh, before the break, uh, Marin Johnson, you, you talked about the appeal. You're, you're just out there in the wilderness, you and your 12 best friends, as you, as you put it, your friend put it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that, that's gotta be an, an appeal. Um, also, you know, you're, you're facing potential danger and you're, you're alone, right? I did a rod. You can't have any assistance during the race, right? That's correct. Except from your competitors. Ah, okay. <laughs> that's the only allowed assistance. And, and, you know, that's one another thing I love so much about mushing is even though everybody's a competitor out there, technically, you're also friends. So, you know, most mushers that I know would put the well-being of another dog musher and their te- and team over their their race outcome. You know, they would stop their race to help somebody in need. And that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, that is. That is. Um uh, so you said no cell phones, obviously, the areas wouldn't, you know, a lot of these right. areas wouldn't have cell phones. Uh, any other 
option? You know, say you have a problem out there and a, and a competitor isn't happening by. How do you, can you call out for help somehow or what, what happens? You can. So every sled has a tracking device on it. And, and that's, you can actually go to com during the race and see where all of the mushers are at any given time, which is very cool. Um, but then in addition to that, there is a button on the tracker where if you really get into trouble, you can push that button and it will literally call in the National Guard to help you out. Wow. So it's kind of one of those like last resort types of buttons. <laughs> and and for that matter, a lot of the time competitors who are behind you are going to reach you before a rescue team can. Um, so it doesn't get pushed too often, but it, it has happened on occasion. Yeah. What are some of the problems? We've talked about a few of them. You know, I guess a dog could get injured, right? I guess the musher could get injured, potentially. What are other problems yeah. that you encounter? Um, so the one, the one time I have personal experience with somebody pushing the button was during last year's Iditarod. My good friend Sean Underwood was running Jeff King's team for him, and... He got caught in overflow, which is water that flows up on top of a layer of ice. And he, it was near the end of the race, so he was tired. And, and he was able to get himself and the team out of the water, but then needed assistance. You know, he started to have hypothermia set in on him. Um, luckily, the dogs, they came back to Nome. I was waiting for them in Nome. They came back in great condition, but... But Sean, the musher, started to to get hypothermia, and he was with two other mushers in similar situations. And so the three of them together decided to push the button to get help Mm. for for that that scenario. And so they sent out mushers to to, actually the the dogs continued running back home. They were in in great condition, so they were able to do that. But they sent out so the dogs could be either flown or mushed back home, depending on what they needed, and then they flew the, the mushers up to Nome where they could get taken care of at the, the clinic. Yeah, that's that's quite the experience. Uh, so that is the first, yeah. time, first time I've heard of that happening. <laughs> yeah, oh, first time, yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, there uh, there have been uh, women winners of I Did a Rod, right? There have been two of them, <laughs> yes. There's Libby Riddles was the first woman to win, win Iditarod. She did in 1985. And then Susan Butcher won 86, 87, and 88. So that was four years in a row for women. And then she won a fourth time in 1990. So we had those two women. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I was reading, I can't remember the, her name, uh, early on uh, the Iditarod uh, I guess it wasn't usual at that point for women to enter, and she told an experience of of entering the race, and then there were men betting at which checkpoint uh, you know that that she would pull out, um, and and she said at each checkpoint uh, there were women who had bet on her who were cleaning up, and she did finish the, she did finish the race, so that was a nice <laughs> that was a nice experience to read. Um, so what makes the what makes the best teams? The, the, so the record is eight days, right? Um, and I'm yeah, not eight sure. days, three hours, and a handful of minutes. <laughs> yeah. So what 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 makes for the fastest racers? I mean, it's it. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's not necessarily just the speediest uh, team. There's a lot of things that go into it. Oh yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. I'd say one of the most important things by far is just the musher knowing how to run the dogs 
so that in their most successful positions, you know, set each dog up for individual success is what's going to bring the success of the team. So that's knowing, you know, how fast they can run for how far, where and when they're going to rest the best, what time of day, um, you know, are you feeding the right types of foods? Are your dogs eating the way that they need to be eating? But it's it's basically this this big chess game I mentioned earlier that's going on in your head is just, you know, you have to play those pieces right in order to win. Mm-hmm. It's definitely more important than speed is just knowing when and where to make your moves. Yeah. So, you know, the, the dogs race for Iditarod and there are probably some other races, uh, but then the rest of the year... I guess you're uh, the the teams like Jeff Kev- King's team. You're you're caring for the dogs. You're training the dogs. What what are you doing for the rest of the year? Yeah. So during the summer, a lot of the dogs we had on the glacier are dogs from my Diderod mushers, and that's a really great setting for them because they still have the snow, so they get to stay cool. They're getting exercised. Um, that's a great setting for the dogs. Dogs who aren't on the glacier are still going to go out for runs on basically a daily basis, but they're a lot shorter just because it is warmer outside and the dogs are a lot more heat sensitive than they are cold sensitive. So we are keep we are running them year round. It's just very short runs in the summer. And then as temperatures start to cool down in the fall, the runs will get gradually longer and longer, kind of based on the weather, <laughs> what kind of temperatures we have. One thing but I was doing that year round. Y- yeah. One thing that struck him was reading, um, they were comparing uh, snowmobiling to dog sledding, right? They were saying uh, dog sledding more expensive because snowmobile you can just put away, <laughs> oil up and put away <laughs> in the garage, right? The, the dogs, you're feeding them and training them year-round. Yes, yep. <laughs> but a dog team is less likely to break down than a snowmobile. Yeah, that's trail. true. That's so true. They're also seen as more dependable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, by the way, the rules are, I think, Iditarod, you have to start with at least 12 dogs and you have to finish with at least five? At least six. At least six. Yes. Okay. Are are the, are some teams down to six by the time they get to the end? It does happen on occasion. Um, actually, Dallas CV, I want to say it was 2016. Um, Dallas CV crossed the finish line in first place once with only six dogs. Wow. So once again, that was more of a musher strategy type thing where oh. he said it's you know it takes less time to take care of six dogs than it does to take care of 12 dogs. Yeah. And so he kept most of his dogs until he got close to the finish line and then said, okay, we're going to save some time by sending these ones home. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can finish with six dogs, and it has happened on occasion. But I think more often than not, most mushers try to try to finish with more dogs yeah, just for fun. <laughs> and you, 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 you've been to those, uh, drop dog manager, uh, checkpoints. Um, and obviously yes. if, if, a, if a dog's has any sort of a problem at all, you, you drop them off. You don't want to injure them. Right. Right. Of course. Yeah. Uh, do you, have you ever encountered, I'm just imagining, you know, a, a great dog that, that, runs and lives this life for a long time, and then they get older, you, you encounter retired dogs? Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, re- dog retirement is very individualized. Um, I've seen dogs as old as 10 run and finish the Iditarod in perfect health. <laughs> um, these are very, very hardy dogs. They live a very healthy lifestyle, and so for a large dog, they live very long up to 16 to 18 years easily, and I actually even know a 20-year-old Alaskan Husky who was a sled dog. Um, So when they retire, um, which could be anywhere between age 
8 and 12 usually. The Where they go is also kind of individualized. One of our favorite places to send a retired dog would be to a child who's just getting into the sport. They're going to be running a lot slower, much shorter distances, and this older dog who's very experienced can teach the musher and their other dogs a lot. So that's one really good place. Um, We'll also send them to recreational mushers who, once again, run a lot slower and a lot shorter. Most of these dogs who retire aren't necessarily done, like they don't want to be done running, but they're done running a 1,000 miles. Um, And then, of course, we also just find pet homes for others. Um, I actually brought home two dogs from the glacier when they were ready to retire, one at age 10 and the other at age 8. So you've you've got those uh, those with you? I do. um, The one that I got when she was 10 is now 14, and she's still crazy energetic, bouncing off the walls most of the time. Um, My other one, unfortunately... He passed away last month at age oh. 12. Oh, sorry about that. Um, but not from, he, he was in good health. It was a complication to a surgery. Okay, yeah. But. Just a couple more questions. We're down at the end of time here. Um, um, maybe talk a little bit about Alaska. The, the, the nickname for Alaska is the last frontier, right? Um, yeah. And, and it seems like this the stereotype I have, I've never been to Alaska, that... Uh, People sort of self-select to Alaska. Is it adventure? Is that what people are looking for when they relocate to Alaska? I think that's a big part of it for a lot of people. Um, It's funny. When I first got up there, you know, people up there are just different, and it's hard to explain how. They're all a little bit weird, but so am I. And it was like within an hour of stepping off a plane the first time, I just knew, like, these are my people. (laughs) And I think it is partially that big sense of adventure, um, you know, people aren't afraid to try new things that might even sound crazy to others, like running a thousand miles on a dog sled. <laughs> um, and, and it's a very strong community feeling. You know, pe- a lot of people live remotely and their their nearest neighbor would be a mile away or further. And but, you know, that they're there for you. And it's just a strong community feeling. Everybody feels bonded and it's it's very it's a beautiful place to be as well. So the environment, the people, it's everybody's outside all the time, even when it's 30 and 40 below. <laughs> it's a lot of, a lot of fun. Well, uh, we've reached the end of our time here. Uh, Marin Johnson has been with us. Uh, she's, uh, she lives in Cache Valley now. The last five years, she was up in Alaska uh, working with sled dogs, uh, working with various businesses, um, assisting tourists to get that experience, and also working on the Iditarod, including helping Jeff King, a four-time Iditarod winner. Uh, so, Marin Johnson, I guess you're right now working on the dairy farm, but maybe back to Alaska at some point? <laughs> yep. I hope so. Yeah, very, very good. Uh, Marin Johnson has a bachelor's degree in outdoor recreation management from USU and a certificate in veterinary technology from Bridgerland Technical uh, College. Uh, so, Marin Johnson, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences uh, with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, 
also heard and streaming online at upr.org. Wait, you're listening. Okay.